0: Horse fans and hello, mystery fans. Welcome to another episode of Horse Mysteries, the podcast that brings you together, both of you, or all of you, or one of you. My name is David Dedrick.
1: My name is Lisa Williamson.
0: And this week is our final episode of the season. This is episode eight. You know, before we get there, of course, we have to make a little pause for what we like to call the Horse Bits cul-de-sac. Dear. Mm Mm-hmm. I was wondering today if you could talk a little bit about why we use saddles for horses.
1: Oh, well. Saddles basically revolutional what's the word? Revolutionized. Revolutionized? Yes, that's right. Okay. Um yeah, people's ability like in war. I think it was the Chinese who first like the Mongols who first used uh, saddles or first used stirrups. So basically, a saddle just gives you more stability on a horse. Yes, yeah. That's the kind of bottom line. It doesn't matter who you are or what your goal is. It gives you more stability on a horse. And it also spreads your weight out a little bit. Like I, There's a lot of people that advocate um, bareback riding. I, I am a big fan of bareback riding. In fact, I have spent the whole summer riding bareback. Actually, most of the year I've been riding bareback to the point that I was supposed to go on a show a week ago and jumping and I'm like I have not ridden in a saddle for so long but no I, I like bareback riding on the right horse right okay or, or Pony Harris easy to ride bareback my thoroughbred Archie with a very high wither would be much harder but yeah so I think it was like the Mongols or Genghis Kong those guys they invented stirrups to put on a saddle and that made them far better riders, they could run faster, they could do way more things and just be way more fierce on a horse. Hmm. So it gave them a lot more ability to do all those things that they were trying to do and and gave them an advantage over those people that didn't have saddles and didn't use stirrups.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure if it was Mongols. I always thought it was the Persians because it allowed their archers to be mounted.
1: Yeah, it could have been. Yeah. Some of those old-fashioned people. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah.
0: They were old-fashioned.
1: Yeah. They wore old-fashioned clothes.
0: Yes, they did. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because the saddle would have been developed, and then over time, the, the stirrups would have been added to it as a new feature. And then I imagine, you know, originally, the the bridle would have been a very simple thing that over time became more complicated as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, one one thing I was going to be talking about, which I forgot, got distracted. Um, the the whole bareback thing. Although I'm a fan of it, I was at a saddle fit clinic and someone brought up bareback saddle pads, which are kind of like a treeless saddles. Okay. Um, and they they were big advocates of this and the saddle fitter said they are perfectly fine. They're really good. But after about six months of constant use, your seat bones start to drill a hole in the horse's back was the kind of analogy. Obviously they don't literally do that, yeah, yeah. but I kind of thought, Oh, I never thought of that. So, so yeah. a
0: saddle also protects the horse's back. Yeah. Too. yeah it's not so just it for spreads, your own comfort. Yeah, yeah. It
1: spreads. I mean, assuming it is a well-fitted saddle, of course, a well-made saddle and a yeah, well-maintained yeah. saddle, but sure. um yeah, it's, it's, primarily for the stability of the the person but yeah there are benefits to the horse Mm. as well
0: so how come do you know why i mean this is a question if you don't know why it's okay if you don't but you know the european or english saddle is a lot smaller than the western saddle do you know why that is was it just
1: i think probably i'm totally guessing here but i would guess it's just because of the purpose of it Mm. um i think uh, English saddle, and like older English saddles tended to be heavier. Okay. Like I've got a Passier all-purpose or jumping saddle from the 1960s that is very, very heavy Okay, compared to, you know, it's my boute French saddle that I have right now. Yeah. So... Yeah, the weight of saddles is... That's called
0: because you sit in it with your bootay.
1: That's right. Um, So, yeah, the weight of saddles is getting lighter, but uh, I think, yeah, Western saddles, I don't know, perhaps they're the opposite. They have always been quite big, Mm -hmm. but I think they need that kind of weight and stability because one of the things that they did a lot with Western saddles was, you know, using the horn to help with the rope to catch cattle the, yeah. And, uh, yeah so with uh an english saddle it would be maybe smaller lighter that would be my guess okay but it's a, just a guess
0: well it's not a bad guess mm-hmm. it's an educated guess yeah based on years of, of using a saddle
1: yeah but not much, western
0: saddle. <laughs> not much western saddle well i probably that's what i probably first wrote i mean for sure that's what i first wrote in when i Western? First rode was Western. Oh, yeah. yeah like as a, a dude sort dude, of.
1: Dude ranch place, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and Western saddles are very good for introducing people to riding because they have the horn that you can hang on to. Mm, so, mm-hmm. yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. And they went from that to the English saddle. Because it's interesting, like, you, you think in terms of comfort, but, like, English people in the day rode, you know, great distances on their horses, mm-hmm. you know. Which, I, you know, it's sort of funny because you don't think about it it, like, I never think about it that way, because you're so used to the very common image of, you know, horse and cart, like horse and carriage or horse and wagon, you know, whether it's a British, you know, a wagon mm-hmm. carrying people or or a carriage carrying, like, rich people to places and things. They don't really think about the fact that it was also common for people to just ride a horse, mm-hmm. you know. And so it's it's kind of hard to think of you know that we're used to that as a Western image. We're not used to it as a as a European image mm-hmm. necessarily. Like in like in most popular things, although I am thinking think about it like a sense of sensibility, the uh, scoundrel in that, whatever his name is now it's, it's what is what is Eleanor Yell? Or Marianne Yell? Well, Willoughby, well, Willoughby, whatever his name is.
1: Wellington? Willoughby, yeah. Willoughby. Willoughby. Maybe. Willoughby, Willoughby yeah,
0: yes. yeah. The, the, he rides like a horse just rides a horse around, mm-hmm. you know. And there's a scene also in another Jane Austen book, Emma, where where Frank Churchill rides his horse into London to get her haircut. Mhm. Much to everyone's scandal, you know that he would waste his day. Yeah,
1: well, I think people would ride a horse for transportation, but also horses were just ridden for, like, business purposes as well, because I was told, I don't know if this is true, but that, you know, when we do rising trot, it's also called posting trot, and Mm -hmm. the reason it's called posting trot is because mailmen in England used to have to ride long distances, and if you're just bouncing along, um, it's not very comfortable, so posting was developed at the trot, or whatever, they did it commonly, and so that's where the term posting comes mm. from. That might be an old wives' tale, but, yeah, I was told that by someone who is a very studious horse person, a well-known studious horse person yeah. who has a PhD. possible. Oh,
0: that's possible. Yeah. That's possible. I, I don't know how much delivery was actually done on horse, because, you know, there were so many mailboxes in those days. It w- the mail was basically... Like, tele- call, telephoning in those days. Like, especially if you lived in London, mm-hmm. there was three deliveries a day.
1: Yeah, no, I, I know, think so, more th- in three the rural and three areas, yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah, for
0: sure. Yeah, like, what my fav- one of my favorite authors, Anthony Trollope, rode a horse for his job, which was as a postal station inspector. So he mm-hmm. would go from town to town to inspect the postal, the post offices to make sure that they were following the rules. Yeah. And, and, you know, so...
1: Yeah, I kind of... I. Kinda, I, I maybe doubt the veracity of that story because I can't imagine that people didn't post already before
0: that time yeah, yeah it doesn't make any sense is it
1: whatever yeah maybe they just maybe this the word posting came from mm. that
0: yeah before that was called maybe it was called a rising trot yeah or
1: bumping I don't know a, <laughs> a bumping not, trot not bumping yeah <laughs> that's what they call it not bumping
0: yeah <laughs> the comfortable trot all right well that's that was good thank you dear <laughs> That was our final horse horse bits for the season.
1: Yeah, season three.
0: And now, what did you say? Sorry,
1: I said season three. Yeah.
0: For the season, yeah, season three. And so now we go to our main story, mm-hmm. which you did reveal the title of last episode. But let's refresh our memory. This episode is going to be called
1: uh, Fox Fox Catcher.
0: Fox Catcher. Yeah. The uh, movie. Yes. With Steve C- Carell. Yes. Yeah, or That's Carell. right. How okay. Yeah.
1: Steve. Yeah. Carell. I think. Yeah. Is Steve Carell. Yeah
0: and i sound like such an ignoramus like as if i don't or a, or a phony maybe i should say like as if i don't know who steve carell is now tell me who is steve carell <laughs> star of the office you say i've never heard of it 40 year old virgin what anyway so yes fox catcher mm-hmm. all right well
1: yeah so if you know the movie you probably are familiar with the fact that he was a wrestling coach so why are we looking at this story now <laughs> well he was
0: it was he a wrestling coach or was he a sponsor of
1: well in his mind he was a wrestling coach
0: (laughs) okay
1: yeah so we'll get into it let's get into that all right and you'll we will see the horse connection with this as well which is actually i think figures very prominently in this story all right that's maybe just my take on it
0: all right i'm going to sit back in the horse mysteries armchair now okay and if my eyes are closed i'm just concentrating very deeply on what you're saying okay so let's hear the story all
1: right so january 26,
0: nineteen ninety six what were you doing then nineteen ninety six january 26, nineteen ninety six I was in uh farrier school at that time oh were you okay wasn't I oh no, no I, I wouldn't have been out, no I would have yeah. been out by then sorry no no I guess we were probably living at your parents' place cause no no. no. we'd sold our house not, no because that was ninety seven oh, we maybe or was it '97? That no, I don't know what we were doing '96. I don't know. I was li- we were living in the townhouse then. Yeah, yeah. I was.
1: So you're a dad of a. I was uh,
0: scraping along as a as a low level farrier, <laughs> and uh, I had a, a little daughter.
1: Yeah, happy times.
0: They were they were happy
1: times. Yeah. So where this takes place is a guest house located on part of the 800 acre Lysiter Hall Farms Estate, which is on Goshen Road in Newtown Square, Pennsylvania. Okay. Goshen. A Goshen? Is that yeah. how you'd say it?
0: Yeah, oh, it's a okay. biblical, uh, biblical name. So, uh, Land of Goshen.
1: Oh, really? What does that mean?
0: Goshen is like some place, like a physical place in, in the Old Testament.
1: Oh, okay.
0: But I don't know if it was like a promised land kind of idea. I'm not too certain of it, hmm. what exactly it meant. I once knew, but I can't remember
1: now. Yeah. So, what happened on that day? So, on January 26, 1996, the property owner and wrestling coach, by the name of now, I'll, I'll, I'll say this name wrong, too, probably. Mm. John Eleuther Dupont. Okay. Eleuther, is that how you say it?
0: I'm looking at it now. Mm-hmm.
1: John. It's like a French.
0: Oh, Eleuther, yeah. I don't know. That's strange.
1: Yeah, it is different. Anyway.
0: But his last name was also French. Yeah, so yeah. Sense.
1: So the family was originally French a long time ago. Yeah. Um, so he's 58 at the they time. They of the bridge. Mm-hmm. So he was being driven around the estate. So this is his own estate that he's on. This is yes. Halls Farms um, by his security consultant, a man by the name of Patrick Goodale. Okay. They were looking for storm damage caused by a recent freezing rain. I see. So This DuPont, is 96. Yeah, 96. In January of 96. Mm. Yeah. So DuPont asks Goodale to drive uh, DuPont's Silver Lincoln Continental up to the guest house on the estate uh, and in that guest house, Olympic gold medalist Dave Schultz, who was 36, lived with his family.
0: sort to interrupt you one more time.
1: Yeah.
0: Was that the year we had that really crazy snow that I lost it around was. forever? I yeah. I'm just thinking that, I think it was like a bad winter mm-hmm. for everyone that year.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting that, because um, Pennsylvania and I think New York, like those areas that were affected by the um, the caterpillars and caused the full deaths. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then we had the similar thing, so... We seem to have, yeah, sometimes similar similar bad weather.
0: As if we're on the same continent. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. Anyway, so, yeah, Dave Schultz and his family have lived in this house since 1989. And Mm. Schultz's job was coaching at DuPont's facility on the farm. And at the same time, he was training for his comeback in the 1996 Atlanta Olympics. Olympics so and he was going to be part of what was called team fox catcher
0: okay it's a great name by the way
1: it is it is yeah so Schultz at the time as they pulled up was already outside in the snow and he was working on the radio of his Toyota Tercel Hmm. so the car pulls up DuPont rolls his window down and Schultz waves and says hi boss DuPont screams at Schultz you got a problem with me DuPont then pulls out a forty four caliber Magnum revolver and shoots through the back window of Schultz's vehicle, hitting Schultz twice. Schultz's wife, Nancy, was outside the house working when she heard the first shot. She ran, or she was inside, sorry, she ran outside to the porch in time to see DuPont fire the second shot. Nancy yelled at him to stop, but DuPont proceeded to fire a third shot into the prone and dying Schultz's back. DuPont then pointed the gun at Nancy, who retreated into the house and called 911. So Goodale, who is also armed, has a completely different version of the story. Yeah. Uh, But the bottom line is DuPont gave Goodale no indication that he was going to shoot Schultz. And it all happened so fast that Goodale was unable to take any steps to prevent the act. DuPont then asked Goodale to drive him to his mansion, and then DuPont barricades himself in his mansion. So, meanwhile, Nancy's on the phone to 911 reporting the shooting. When asked by the 911 operator why DuPont shot her husband, her response was, because he's insane. Okay. (laughs) So, the first responders arrive within minutes to help Schultz, but it's too late. He's pronounced dead at Mercy Haverford Hospital at 3.30 p.m. that same day. The police arrive on the scene, um, and they're instantly concerned because they're very familiar with DuPont. Mm. Um, DuPont's family had initially made its money in gunpowder. DuPont himself was said to be an Olympic caliber marksman. The police were very well aware he had a variety of weapons and tactical equipment on site. I see. Uh, the police were very familiar with DuPont and his property because DuPont had... In the past, granted them use of his training facilities, um, and the police and DuPont had recently just had a major falling out, and he had banned them from the property. Okay. Or from using his facilities. Yes. So next, it was a 50 and a half hour long standoff. So John DuPont closes himself up in the mansion in a steel-lined room intended as a bomb shelter, but which is normally used as a library. Okay. On scene, they have 70 officers, a 30 man SWAT team, and an FBI negotiator called Thomas Couples. Law enforcement tries various tactics, from shining blinding lights into the house to restricting DuPont's phone access with the negotiators. Ultimately, the police resort to turning off his heat. <laughs> DuPont, a short while later, exits the building in an attempt to fix his heating issues and is apprehended before he can re enter the mansion. <laughs> So upon searching, yeah, he, he kind of, I remember seeing the movie and he had phoned them he goes, okay, I need to go out. It's cold in here. I need to go out and fix the, the heat. You guys won't, you know, like stop me. And they're like, oh, no, we won't stop you. And then he went outside and they got him. I don't know if that's actually true, but that's how it went yeah, down yeah. in the movie. So yeah. anyways, yeah. Anyway. Well, is,
0: in other cases, it just seems sort of naive that you're just going <laughs> to sneak out yeah. in the middle of this tense negotiation you know there you're like 80 people you're in a big standoff with the police you're just going i'm just gonna yeah gonna go fix just
1: excuse me for a minute yeah
0: pay no attention to the man leaving from the back door of the
1: he's he's making a little t sign with his hands (laughs) time time yeah yeah okay so, the, after they had apprehended him, the police searched the house. They found 15 long rifles with scopes, night vision equipment, various handguns, and something called a street sweeper, which is a specialized multi shot drum driven gun.
0: So, basically, your typical American's <laughs> yeah. Or, or armory. Yeah. yeah.
1: So, it was loaded with 12 gauge rounds, and they also found multiple protective vests like Kevlar, I guess. Sure, sure. So that was the incident, and that was the immediate. Um, I mean, outcome.
0: To be fair to him, he wasn't wearing these things or using them. No, against the police. no, but
1: they were there. But so, they were
0: there, so yeah. the police were aware of these mm-hmm. that he had a lot of artillery and that they needed to be careful. Yes, they couldn't just storm the house. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm.
1: So, we'll talk a little bit about the place, because I think the place figures very prominently in this story. Okay. The place and the family, too, but... Okay. Well, lots of things, too. Anyway, so, <laughs> Lisseter Hall Farms is an was... So, can you say the name again? Lisseter. Lisseter, L- okay. I think I'm saying it right. Probably not. L-I-S-E-T-E-R. Lisseter? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I Anyways, it was an 800-acre parcel that had remained largely unchanged since 1681, That's pretty good. Um,
0: Where where was it located? In what state? Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, okay.
1: So it had originally been used as William Penn's reference point in laying out the original charter for Newtown Square in Pennsylvania.
2: Wow.
1: Yeah. So the estate was later presented as a 1919 wedding gift by John DuPont's maternal grandfather, the railway magnate William Lisseter Austin, who was the owner of Baldwin Locomotive Works. So he gave the farm to his daughter, Jean Lisseter Austin, Austin, on her wedding day to William DuPont Jr., a banker, businessman, and one of the heirs to the DuPont Chemical Corporation's fortune. (laughs) The couple's wedding was billed by the media as the wedding of the century due to the immense wealth brought to the union by both sides. In 1925, John's paternal grandfather, William DuPont Sr., built and paid for a new house to be built on the property, which was an exact copy of President James Madison's Montpellier. Is that how you say it? Sure. Yeah. Uh, So the three-story Georgian mansion in which William Jr. had grown up. Sorry,
0: wait. So William Jr.
1: William Jr. was... William
0: DuPont Jr. Yeah. His... Grew grew up in in James Madison's house. Yes. Like the former... Yeah. Yeah, former
1: former president's house. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so they made an exact replica of the house at this place for the young couple. Nice. But unfortunately, the marriage broke up in 1941. (laughs) Uh, Jean remained to the farm with her children and ran the farm with a strong hand until her death in 1988. I see. So the. Property was a dedicated equestrian facility, as the family was heavily invested in the breeding, training, and campaigning of champion horses of many different breeds and disciplines.
2: Okay.
1: The estate featured a training track, thirty barns, thirty barns, and outbuildings, <laughs> and pastures, woodlots, and paths that were used for fox hunting and steeple chasing. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, quite the place. Yeah. Anyway. 30 burns. Yeah. And so John had basically inherited that. There were other siblings that were much older than him, but he basically was living at home with his mom. Okay. When she died. And so he just stayed on. I see. So the crime, going back to the crime... Basically, he had the means, he had the motive, and he had the opportunity um, to commit this crime, and he, he also had the witnesses. Yeah, <laughs> witness to, to do to it. it. <laughs> so, but um, I said he had the means, motive, and opportunity. Oh, yeah, he yeah. had the he had the means, and he had the um, opportunity. But I guess the thing yeah, what are you gonna say? He question, had the motive. What what, what it was the yeah, motive? I yeah. guess that was a mystery. What what it was a motive? Yeah. So. He had what you know many would say was a very privileged, very charmed upbringing, living in this wonderful place with you know all this money, etc. Yeah, so the family had, I'm
0: sure it sounds great.
1: Yeah, sounds great. Yeah, incredible wealth and resources. Mm -hmm. So he lived in a mansion that was set in a park, it was in an affluent area close to many great schools, like again, I'll send it say it wrong, Bryn Mawr. Is that how you say Bryn Mawr, huh? Yeah. That's where
0: uh, Catherine Hepburn went.
1: Yeah. So, like, it literally was, like, a block away. Oh, okay. So, very, very close. He um, couldn't
0: go there because it was an uh, all Yeah, all-girls all girls school, school. But, but yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. Having an all-girls school a block away, that's a good thing if you're a guy, right? I thought Maybe. I liked Catherine Hepburn. I don't Maybe know. Maybe not. Yeah. Um, when his dad died. Angular. And, what was that?
0: Angular, tough-talking. Yeah.
1: So when his dad died in 1966, he inherited 55 million on his father's death, hmm. um, and then he got was granted another 33 million in 1983.
0: That'll keep the th- 30 barns going.
1: Yeah, but at that point, his mom was in charge of all that. Oh, okay. It was her money. Yeah. So, um, but <laughs> in spite of all this good fortune, John was a product of divorce, and yeah. he was raised by a woman who is described by. Um, many people as being a cold mother. Okay. Um, she seemed to value her accomplishments of her animals over that of her son. Okay. Um, and in order to get his inheritance, John was required to marry, but he his marriage didn't last. It was not happy. Okay. But that's why he got that $33 million. I see. Yeah. He's bought off. So it was rumored that John DuPont was sexually conflicted. I see. So according to some, he had been injured in his early 30s in a horse riding accident when he landed on a fence. Okay. The result being that his testicles became so badly inflamed that they both had to be removed. Huh. Yes. And it was also rumored that they had been replaced with prosthetics. That's odd. I, it is odd. Anyways. How, um, come,
0: how come I wasn't given that option? I don't know. Wind chimes.
1: No. Uh, uh,
0: so. Is yeah. That seems kind of odd to me that no one said at the time. Like, do you yeah. want you you f- a fake one? You don't need it. I probably would have said no, but I just, it wasn't even an option. No. Maybe they weren't, oh, I don't know when he had his done.
1: This is a while ago, so he would have been born 1950, so if that happened, it would have been 1970-ish, no, 1980. 1980, yeah. 80 ish when it happened, so, (laughs) yeah. So, apparently he had to take daily testosterone shots, but sometimes he forgot to do so. Okay. And that they felt that maybe contributed to his sometimes erratic behavior. He didn't always have erratic behavior. Okay. In 1988, um, Andre Metzger, who was the assistant wrestling coach at Villanova University, which is also just around the corner, wow. um, John DuPont, he was a benefactor and head coach at, of wrestling uh, at Villanova. Mm. So this Andre Metzger claimed that he was fired when he spurned DuPont's sexual advantage- advances. Hmm. So Metzger went on to file a sexual harassment suit against DuPont and some speculated that John had expressed similar feelings toward both the happily married Schultz and his brother Mark when each were coaching at the facility. Okay, but whatever. Um, Dupont was was fairly intelligent, highly intelligent. So he he claimed to have a doctorate, but I also was only able to find evidence of him getting a bachelor's. Okay. So, anyways, he he at least had one degree. Sure. And it was in natural sciences, but he did claim to have a doctorate. Um, he had a passion for ornithology. And he had a Philippine parrot and a Mexican sparrow that were named after him. So, like, the actual species was named oh, after him. Oh, I see. Him. Okay, yeah. I see. <laughs> not not just, like, one. <laughs> he owned. whole species was he named. Owned, yeah. He
0: owned. He it One was called John. The other one was called John Jr. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that's right. So, he also uh, valued... Philanthropy, he thought it was very important, okay. and he had established the Delaware Museum of Natural History in Wilmington, uh, which he built, funded, and then donated his personal collection to.
0: Be funny if it was in Wilmington, Vermont. <laughs> so there's a Wilmington, Delaware, and a Wilmington, Vermont.
1: Yeah, pretty sure it was in Delaware. Okay,
0: so he also called the Delaware,
1: yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So he also believed that mentorship was valuable uh, okay. because he supported various athletic teams and athletes in many different sports over a period of three decades. So he also was ambitious and had dreams of athletic glory for himself. Okay. So he had made many attempts to gain a foothold. In Olympic level competition. So initially, he tried to be a swimmer when he joined the Santa Clara Swim Club out in California in the 1960s, okay. which produced numerous top swimmers. Okay. Um, there, he was said to be the slowest guy in the pool, but a dedicated athlete. Okay. So later, he tried to gain a berth on the U.S. modern pentathlon team, and finally, he tried out as a wrestler. Ultimately, competing in three international competitions at age.
0: 55. Seems a little long in the tooth to be competing at an Olympic level, but okay.
1: So, but it was sad, like reading about him when he was trying to be like a swimmer, (laughs) when he still was young and. But he just wasn't, he
0: wasn't an athlete. No,
1: no. If you saw pictures of him and you're like, yeah, that guy's not an athlete, but like he was so convinced, you know, that if you just tried hard enough, you could do it. Sure. But yeah, he's he's the uh, walking proof that that's not always the case. <laughs> not
0: even if you throw enough money at it, can yeah. you can you do it? As-
1: so, but yeah, it was obvious that he wanted nationwide recognition somehow, some way. Mm-hmm. Um, so he attempted to get his likeness on a postage stamp in the U.S., <laughs> but learned that only those who had died already yeah. could get uh, be on a stamp. I so see. then he went t- and cut a deal with Antigua-controlled Rotunda, which is a town, I mean a country, um, to become the subject of a series of stamps depicting him in various athletic poses. So, he was also, unfortunately, prideful. Uh, No, really? Yes, yes, he was. This is
0: shocking to me, a man who paid a country to (laughs) put his likeness in various athletic poses is is prideful? Well, Yeah.
1: So Strange. There, yeah, there were reports of wrestling matches that were set up both in the U.S. and overseas where when he competed, his competitors were made to understand that they had to take it easy on him. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so this included Jeez. a public match where John wrestled against Olympic gold medalist J- Dave Schultz, who was two decades younger than him and John won in quotation marks. <laughs> but it was it was always kind of... It seemed like, like he was generally he genuinely believed he had won those matches. Like I think the other people set it up. So yeah, that yeah. He, I don't think it was him going. Well, and saying, I, don't, I don't know. Like, I don't know. People. Yeah, I know people. people can, can believe be so what they want. Yeah. yeah.
0: Like I remember, it still bothers me to this day. I was playing Risk with a with a person one time. I this is a, like the first time I'd ever like played. Like you know, I didn't really know them very well, and they came over to my house, and we started playing Risk, and I was winning, and they're getting so mad. Like, so mad. They're, like, throwing the dice around and stuff like that on my parents' house. And I was like, well, this is no good. Like, mm-hmm. this is crazy. So I just made, like, the most obvious dumb error in the world. I just thought anyone would know that right. I made, like, a. I obviously made this stupid blender. But no, like, he was not only like, was he a bad bad loser, he was the worst winner I've ever played either. Because <laughs> he just started crowing and acting like he was, like, the smartest guy in the room. And just, it made it even worse because it was so obvious to me that I made the mistake and let him win. Mm-hmm. But he really thought that he had done it. Or he apparently thought he really done it. Yeah. And I was resolved after that to never never do that again. No. It's so unbearable.
1: Yeah. Yes, I know.
0: It's, people are strange. That's mm-hmm. what I'm saying to you.
1: Yeah. So he's also said to be eccentric.
0: Well, I think we've established that.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, but he, I'm glad
0: you spelled it out for yeah.
1: us. At various times, he had claimed to be the Dalai Lama, <laughs> the president of Bulgaria, and the holy child.
0: Who's the holy child?
1: He was. Like, so, the, he... Baby Jesus or whatever.
0: He's Baby Jesus. Yeah. He realizes like a timeline to that.
1: <laughs> uh, he also bought a tank, like an army tank. Okay. And drove it around his property. Sure. Yeah.
0: Oh, so he's also General Patton. hmm
1: So uh, he also ha- was a bit of a control freak. Um, so he had bought a police car, again, through the... Newtown yes. police force who yeah. he was friends with yeah um, and he would then regularly perform citizens arrests on people who were driving near his property or just walking near his property
0: <laughs> and what was there what was the criminal charge
1: I think he would pull people over for speeding and stuff oh, like okay. that loitering whatever yeah, yeah. yeah I think they were like minor things and obviously nothing was real but he just felt he had the well, it's, authority no, it's to do it's real. That. There's a
0: person who probably like wearing a gun and all this stuff is arresting you or like charging you with yeah in a police car with malfeasance. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. like I mean, that's yeah,
1: that's, that's dangerous behavior. Yeah, yeah. That's not good. But yeah, he had a, at one point he had a very close association with the local law enforcement, and he had been made an honorary officer of the Newtown Police in the 1960s. Mm. So he tended to step on and overstep when it came <sighs> to. Um, coaching as well yeah. in the various sports in which he was involved. And that became a sore spot. And ultimately it, resulted in him moving on to different sports. Sure, Yeah.
0: This really spells out, like, for me personally, the problem with, like, rich people philanthropy, which is essentially it's just like an ego thing for them. And you can see this here where he's like, he believes in mentoring, but he believes in mentoring to his own personal uh what's the word I'm looking for? His own personal gain or his his own interest. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like he doesn't care about, he doesn't really care about the athletes. He cares about his role in it. Mm -hmm. That's what he, he wants him to be the the person. Yeah. Yeah. He wants people to know that he's the person who's, who, you know, is mentoring or believes Mm -hmm. in mentoring and, and is giving money to these institutions and stuff like that. Yeah. It's all for him, you know? And so he's in control of, of the purse strings. And so he's using that as a way to, to, you know, create this totally unfair situation where he's, winning phony games and yeah this is the typical rich person philanthropy you know like you know wealthy person philanthropy which is entirely a narcissistic ego trip and has nothing to do with the people who are supposedly supposed to benefit from it yeah, or, the, or the
1: sport itself or the sport itself Yeah, yeah. you sir have hit the nail on, this head, on the head yeah <laughs> you got it okay so yeah the, unfortunately when he got kind of to threshold level As well, another issue with him is he had a propensity to violence. So uh, in the late 70s, there was an incident where he was mad that the fish in his pond weren't biting. So he then turned and started shooting geese in the area and almost hit a 12-year-old boy who was also there. So he got in trouble for that. Um, There were also two separate lawsuits filed against him one where he pointed a machine gun at wrestler Dave Chade, and one where he held a knife to his ex-wife's temple while they were still married um, because he claimed she was a Russian spy.
0: Wow, okay. Yeah. So he's dealing with... Mental health issues Mental health too. issues yeah. Yeah. as well. Yeah. yeah. It's a really dangerous uh, mm-hmm. stew there <laughs> yes. being created yeah. here. Some yeah. of the narcissistic baby man who uh, has... has uh, Issues with anger issues and also has uh, artillery.
1: Yeah, unlimited funds and... (laughs) Yes.
0: Yeah. And and allowed to have guns. Mm -hmm. Oh, boy.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, he wanted to be viewed as a benefactor. So he literally had spent millions on various sports, uh, particularly on Villanova University's wrestling program. So this included the creation of a sports pavilion that bore his name. Uh, in the 1980s, he was sponsoring Olympic-level wrestlers, and for almost a decade, he donated just under half a million dollars a year to a organization called Wrestling USA. Mm. Uh, he I was, love that
0: Beach Boys song.
1: Oh, yes. Uh, he was good at identifying lesser-known no- sports, um, determining their needs, and then he would sweep in like a hero and give them everything they needed or that they thought they needed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What they didn't need was him. <laughs>
0: that's the thing right there's your there's your hidden cost in this in this whole thing is Mm -hmm. the the fact that you've now got this barnacle attached to the to your and not even like a good barnacle no it's a bad barnacle are there good barnacles i don't know
1: so yeah when his mom died in august 1988 um it was it was said that his mental stability suffered pretty much immediately so She died at 91, and he had always pretty much lived at home with her, Mm -hmm. but he immediately changed the name of the farm from Lisseter Farms to Foxcatcher Farms. So Foxcatcher was the name of his father's first thoroughbred. I see. Um, It was also said that he chased all his mother's horses out of the barns when she died. He went and kicked them all out. Yeah. Uh, he believed ghost lives in the walls of his houses, and he rigged the walls, basements, and tunnels under the house with razor wire and infrared ghost-catching cameras.
0: What's? <laughs> so he had ghost-catching razor wire.
1: Yes, yeah. And then the year before the shooting, um, in a two-day period, he twice drove two customized Lincoln, customized Lincoln Continentals into his pond as well.
0: I guess we're going to get there, where this really shows, like, the desperation of this Schultz character to...
1: Yes, to stay there. To stay there, yeah. like... Yeah. It's... Yeah, because, yeah, the yeah. Schultz guys, they really came from a very poor background, mm. and yeah, wrestling, I mean, um, John DuPont's family really looked down at wrestling. Yeah. Like, to them, swimming was an honorable yeah, sport. Yeah, sure. um And to triathlon, or pen- pentathlon, rather, was as well, but... Yeah wrestling was for urchins and poor people which is and weird
0: because that was like one of the original greek sports mm-hmm. of wrestling like if you're gonna have like if you're gonna think of the olympics as like carrying on in the greek tradition then you have to have wrestling
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but now that was their view of wrestling yeah. and all those people that were associated with it and so they were really against him being involved in wrestling and sure. i i think it almost was kind of implied that he even like built the big facility on the property just to get under his mom's skin and, and the other relatives just to kind of, you know, twist the knife a little bit. So yeah, whatever. But um, yeah, going back to that Schultz guy, I think um, he came from nothing and he had Done very well in the Olympics, and then hadn't, and okay. he was like really wanting to get back and win again. And mm. but he knew he needed to train, and he was getting older. Sure. Um, and then he had a family, a young family, and so he needed, you know, to support his family and free place. You know, his, there's a lot of sure. perks, there's but a lot of, yeah, lot of things
0: but that look good, except for the fact that you're working for a madman mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and a dangerous, yeah. possibly psychotic madman. Yeah. I guess iconic and of Madman go together, really.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. So, uh, yeah, he, he did all those things and, like, drove the car into the pond and all that stuff. But, yeah, he had developed or displayed increasing levels of paranoia over the time between his mom dying and and this incident. Sure. Um, yeah, and it must
0: have really uh, un, unhinged him, you know.
1: To mm-hmm. Yeah, it said that although they had this relationship where she was quite cold she was a real controlling and stabilizing force in his life. Yeah, she must have been life. kind of
0: grounded him a little yeah. bit, at least grounded him to some sort of reality, because
1: mm-hmm.
0: he was at least something that he was used to obeying. Yes. You know, there's nothing else in his life that he obeyed. You know, everyone else had to obey him except for her. And so her authority was, was you know, yeah, overarching out. in yeah, his life. Yeah. yeah. And so when she was gone, there was no one, no one to obey no one to obey, obey him, mm-hmm. or no one for him to obey. It was right. just everyone had to you know, had to, you know, obey him.
1: Yeah, everyone has to kowtow to him, so. Yes, and unfortunately, he, that guy that he was with at the time of the shooting is security consultant. Mm. He was a former U.S. Marine. Again, Patrick Goodale was his name. DuPont had hired him as a security consultant back in 1993, and he was sitting beside DuPont, armed, at the moment that DuPont shot Schultz. Yeah. Um, it said... By many around him, um, that Goodale was capitalizing on John's collapsing mental state and even contributed to it. Okay. Um, so. Sure. Yeah. Sure. That he, makes sense. Yeah. So Goodale was the one that had didn't done the installing of the stuff inside the walls and at his suggestion. Yeah. Right. So we've got ghosts. Well, we've got to put infrared cameras in. We've got to put. Um, this wire in. <laughs> razor wire. Yeah, he also... Ghost
0: catching razor wire. Yeah, he well also... Well known for yeah, stopping he, uh, things that, have, that, are, that are non-corporeal. Yeah. Nothing like barbed wire or razor wire to mm-hmm. stop that from...
1: So Goodale also arranged for searches uh, of the estate for, he believed, um, helping John find mechanical trees that were supposed to be there, <laughs> hidden tunnels, and... Electronic transmitters in the billion in, in billiard ball, balls, and so he charged them $207,000 for all these things. So, okay, finding or not finding these yeah, things, but right. yeah, nothing was ever found, of course. So, Goodale also widened the gap between John and his extended family, so siblings and nieces and nephews and cousins. Um, So, he stated his number one security threat was his family. They were conspiring to gain control of his assets. So, that was Goodale. Yeah. So, Goodale happily took John's money himself when, yeah, John was convinced there were ghosts in the walls and... Experts later, uh, expert witnesses at the trial testified that DuPont was actually a paranoid schizophrenic, hmm. which kind of figures. But yeah, it was also said that there were people around him, no names mentioned, um, who are supplying John with drugs and alcohol, which further eroded his mental health. OK, I think, yeah, drugs were seemed to be a big part of it. Sure. So, yeah, John, we kind of established... It was the
0: time, the times, and then also the money.
1: Mm-hmm, yeah.
0: Definitely allow for drugs.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, John was pretty needy, so he fixed competitions that he won. So, aside from that, um, he would force athletes in, in training at his facilities to watch old footage of his own sporting events and his naturalist activities. So, they would better understand his accomplishments, in quotation marks.
0: Natural... Okay, a naturalist
1: yeah naturalist not not naked guy. not
0: a naturist
1: <laughs> yeah. there's a difference there i was thinking naturist
0: and i was like what wait a second so here i am <laughs> yes you are john
1: yeah so john even installed a special 800 number so his athletes could phone to tell him how they did at competitions and then thank him that was part of the
0: <laughs> of course yeah oh my gosh yeah
1: so, as he grew older, uh, John moved outside of the family for emotional support and approval and kind of reveled in his role as black sheep of the family. Okay. So, as we said, his involvement in wrestling was looked down on, particularly by his mother. She, It was a sport she was extremely disdainful about and said it was a sport for ruffians. Um he later cut off communication with his extended family completely, and at the time of his crime, members of the family were petitioning local agencies to intervene, as they were concerned about his mental health and his drug and alcohol consumption.
0: Hmm.
1: So there was. And I'm also sure these
0: agencies were very helpful.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounded like nothing actually got done. Of course. Yeah, so uh, there was. Likely, much envy and jealousy that first started within his ultra accomplished and competitive extend, extended family, um, and later all those people he surrounded himself with. So, although he was supposed to be helping these people, I think he was envious of them as well. Sure. Um. So he also had a strong sense of betrayal with various people but, that grew. But the his thing past is, is past. like,
0: bec- you know, rec- recognizing they're more accomplished than him, athletic, athletically they still have to thank him you Mm -hmm. know so he is the ultimate victor in his his mind right Right. like he is the ultimate person and that's in that setup he is the top of the pyramid Mm -hmm. no matter how good they are they still have to thank him for their success yeah you know so so yeah it's uh it's not a good situation
1: no no uh so yeah and then there's things like when um dave schultz actually had announced that he was leaving the foxcatcher program to accept a coaching position at Stanford. Okay. And so, yeah, he was, John was very upset about that. And so John offered him a ten dollars to $15,000 bonus to stay. We will talk a little bit about the DuPonts now. So, what do you know about the DuPonts, anything? Teflon. Teflon, yeah. Yeah, they made money on lots of different things.
0: Saran wrap? Is that DuPont?
1: I don't know. I think it was gunpowder first. Yeah. But, yeah, many, many different. I always think of paint, but I don't know if that's right. Anyway. um, So, anyway, (laughs) he had a family that was very accomplished, um, and so he had a lot to live up to. So, the DuPonts originally made their money on gunpowder. And even today, they're still one of the richest families in America, worth $15 billion.
0: Well, uh, I think, they, didn't, they, didn't they sell off the... Oh, no, I'm thinking of... Anyway, it doesn't matter.
1: Yeah, I think I think a lot of it... Like, the family tree is huge. Yeah. Like, it, this goes back, I think, 200 years or whatever. And so, mm. there's 60 or over 100, oh, probably more than that. Like, lots and lots and lots of people that all this money is filtered down to, and there's still seemingly a lot of money left yeah yeah (laughs) Yeah. and i think it's just continuing to produce money as well
0: yeah well it feels like the company exists outside of the family in mm -hmm. a way that it's just you know run by smart people who are yeah create continue to create innovations that are patented by the company that make more money for the company etc yeah
1: i think so i think it's not dupont's in there doing it too much anymore no So the family also played an important role in historic preservation and land conservation, including helping to found the National Trust for Historic Preservation. Um, Charles Sprague Sargent, who is a famed plantsman and director of Harvard's Arnold Arbitorium, declared the extended DuPont family as, this is a quote, a family which has made the neighborhood of Wilmington, Delaware, one of the chief centers of horticulture in the United States. Hmm. So there are 4,000. So there's 4,000 descendants of the initial DuPont well, guy, whose name I will not try to pronounce, Eleuther Irene, DuPont Dunemors or something. And the majority of DuPonts have led well-ordered industrials, indres- industrious lives and many have shared a great passion for horses. So here we're going to get into the horse part. Okay. Why are we talking about this on a horse show? Well, this is why. These are horse people. Yeah. So, the DeFont family has been prominent in the breeding of top horses, starting with John's grandfather, William Sr., who is a prominent horse breeder, judge, and active member of the hunt. He bought ponies for his children, William and Marion, starting their lifelong love of horses. So, early in their marriage, John's parents, William Jr. and Jean, established Spring Lawn Farm Racing Stables one of the Mid-Atlantic's finest thoroughbred racing operations of the 1920s and 30s, and that was at Lisseter Farm, so where this took place. So the farm produced the 1938 Preakness winner, Dauber, Preakness being one of the three races of the Triple Crown. Yes. The stable boasted the first indoor training track in North America. It also had a second half-mile track, an indoor arena, and numerous barns, 30. We had established. <laughs> it was William Jr.'s racing colors, the sapphire, blue, and gold, that John adopted for his team fox catcher program. Okay. So, likewise, John's maternal aunt, Marion, was a lifelong horsewoman known for being the first woman to ride astride in a horse show when she competed in the jumper class in the 1915 Madison Square Garden Show. There you go, showing in New York again. <laughs> Yep. Yep. Call
0: call back to the horse in the grey flannel.
1: That's right. One of the prominent female breeders of thoroughbred bloodstock in the mid-20th century, she was also the owner and breeder of the great horse Battleship, the first American horse to win the English Grand National. Hmm. Impressive. John's siblings all have been involved in horses as well. His older sister, Jean Ellen, was very involved in the running of Fairhill Farm was the master of the Fairhill hunt and after her father could no longer ride and was a strong supporter of the Radnor Pony Club, bringing members over to Fairhill regularly so that they could experience hunting. Hmm. So Fairhill was the site of one of the most prominent three-day events on the East Coast. Okay.
0: Yeah. Huh. What so would they, they hunt there? There's no foxes to hunt, actually. I think
1: so. there are.
0: Oh, there are foxes?
1: Because yeah. I know there's fox in um, Saskatchewan. Oh, really? Yeah. And I think they do fox hunting in um, Ontario. We okay. just here we don't do fox hunt a because we don't have fox. We could go after coyote, but yeah, we just they just decided when they started Fraser Valley hunt here it will be a drag hunt. Okay, and that was way back in the '60s. I see. Yeah, huh. very progressive hippies, I guess. Yeah. So uh, his younger brother, half brother William the Third, who was the owner of a horse called Tampa, or owner of the Tampa Magic, not a horse, uh, sports team. <laughs> yes. Um, but he's also a racehorse. Tampa owner.
0: Orlando Magic.
1: I don't know. It was originally Tampa Magic, I guess. Okay. Um, and <laughs> his brother Henry is a computer scientist and philanthropist in his own right. And he's a founder of Child Incorporated. But he also owned Nemours Morgan Farm and enjoyed driving his four in hand carriage. <laughs> so all his siblings were horse people. Yeah. So while William Jr. was establishing Springlawn Farm, he was also systematically buying up land around Bellevue Hall in Delaware, a place he had inherited from his father. He also began buying nearby land in Cecil County and in the area surrounding Liseter Hall Farm. So it was on the 8,000-acre Cecil County property that he established Fairhill Farm after his divorce from Jean. So Jean stayed at Liseter and then... Um, John's dad went and started Fairhill Farm. Okay. So shortly after he got divorced, he married a lady called Margaret Osborne, who was then the number one ranked world female singles tennis champion. I see. Very sporting family. Yeah. Yeah. So Fairhill Farm just like
0: their son John.
1: <laughs> yeah, Fairhill Farm as I mentioned was a an eventing place. So it boasted a turf steeplechase course modeled on the world-famous Aintree course in England on which William Jr started hosting the Foxcatcher National Cup, a 19 obstacle steeplechase. So the property which straddled the Pennsylvania and Maryland border has a world-famous event, the Maryland 5 Star at Fairhill that still runs today. He named the Maryland portion of the property Foxcatcher, and from there ran the Foxcatcher ha- Hunt Club, uh, one of the best known in North America. So William Jr.'s love of horses and racing resulted in his building 23 different commercial racetracks around the USA, including the track now known as Delaware Park. His love of thoroughbred racing saw him as a part of the syndicate that brought the stallion Blenheim to the USA from the Agacon stud. Blenheim proved to be one of the most influential sires in North America. <laughs> so if you look back in, probably most thoroughbreds.
2: Have Lineage. Some, have some blen- be, uh, Blenheim? Yeah, will
1: be there. Wow. So pretty much the whole family was involved in horses. John's sister, Jean Ellen DuPont Sheehan, or McConnell, took over as Master of the Hunt at Fairhill when William Jr. was too old to continue riding. We said that already.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, she was also very involved in the Radnor Hunt. Yes, I said that already. Um, <laughs> so on his father's death in 1965, when 51 of William Jr.'s horses were put up for auction, auction John spent just under 200000 to purchase seven of them. So John did ride and was involved in horses earlier. Yeah. yeah. Likewise. It's interesting
0: that he didn't compete in that. Like he...
1: He did actually a bit, but we'll get into that a little bit later. Okay. so
0: he left that out of his swimming. Wrestling. Yes.
1: So likewise, when his mum died, John and his brother bought most of her ninety-one ponies at auction, including a stallion that cost John ninety thousand. Which so that kind of goes against the story that he chased all his mum's horses out of the barn. So, but I think he and his brother both bought it. So maybe the brother took the ponies. I don't know. His mother, um, I think it was Welsh ponies that she bred. Oh, okay. Yeah, ninety-one Welsh ponies.
0: Ninety-one Welsh ponies. Yeah. Just what you need.
1: Yes, that would be a good number. <laughs> so it should be noted that John's mom, Jean, herself came from a long-time equestrian family. She was ultra-competitive and devoted her life to her show beagles and her champion Welsh ponies. Um, and her ponies dominated for half a century in the top shows, notably winning championships at the prestigious Devon Horse Show for 78 shows or years in a row. Wow. Yeah. So her horses were said to have won in excess of 32,000 ribbons at horse shows over her lifetime, and when she entertained at Lisseter Hall, it was typically in the room in which she housed her ribbons. (laughs) So Jean was also a long-time member of the Radnor Hunt Club and was referred to by some as the Queen of Radnor. So John's equestrian heritage, his family's equestrian heritage, was hard to live up to. So he was a long-time rider and had tried hard to improve it was also necessary for someone else to hop on his horses before he rode. So, uh, yeah, he always had someone school them first. Yes. So conversely, his cousin, Lana Dupont Wright, was a very unassuming individual whose passions were was horses. And it was her ability with horses that allowed her to make history when she broke the glass ceiling in the world of three-day eventing as the first female ever to compete in the Olympics in three-day eventing. This took place in the 1964 Tokyo Olympics, and while she didn't ultimately place individually, as she suffered two falls on course, one which resulted in her horse breaking his jaw, her persistence resulted in her coming home with a team silver. Okay. So nowadays, if you fall, then you're out. Yeah. But back then, you could fall, get on, keep going. (laughs) (laughs) And so, yeah, she had two terrible falls. And in spite of her horse breaking its jaw, got on and continued. Poor horse. I know. Like, finished the cross-country course and then went the next day and did the stadium round as well. I know. So she now has her place in the U.S. Equestrian Federation Hall of Fame. Hmm. Then, once she had her, uh, you know, she'd already got to the top with eventing what else to do. So she turns to the new, fairly new sport of combined driving. Um, She excelled at that internationally as well. She won the gold in the Paris competition in the 1991 World Championship. Next, she took up the sport of endurance riding and also became world champion as an endurance rider. Hmm. So for her contributions to the sport she is known as Maryland's first lady of equestrian sport And in 2015, was granted the U.S. Equestrian Federation's Lifetime Achievement Award, as well as the Callback Jimmy A. Williams Lifetime Achievement Trophy.
0: Oh, lucky her!
1: Yeah. Anyway, I think they've changed the name of that.
0: Um, Hope she also got the Jawbreaker Award.
1: (laughs) I think she was a. Good person though. I think she was. I think that was just that's just what people did, unfortunately. Yeah, then. I guess you're yeah. right.
0: And I mean when you're in the competitive moment, you're not really thinking in that way too. No. I mean, if probably she broke her jaw, she also would have ridden to the end mm-hmm. of the end of the race too.
1: Yeah, like I think Princess Anne, didn't she fall in the seventy six Olympics, broke her either arm or collarbone, got back on and y- continued yeah, riding. Yeah. yeah. So that was just the way back then. Sure. Okay. So Pe- in addition, people were tough customers. Yes, yeah. So in addition, and Lana crazy. was yeah a world respected or well respected breeder of Connemara ponies. So Yay, yeah, and one of ponies. the founders of the U.S. Eventing Association. Hmm. She also worked tirelessly with local pony clubs, first supporting Middletown and then Saint Augustine. She hosted their activities on her property, which was called Unicorn Farm. She provided all the horses and ponies for the kids to ride, and mentored the members as they came along. One of Lana's biggest payoffs came when her own daughter, Belle Wright Morris, was shortlisted for the 2000 Olympics and placed in the top five at badminton. Unfortunately, Belle died uh, suddenly and unexpectedly uh, at a very young age, oh. but nothing to do with horses. So Lana's Fair. mother and John's aunt, Alaire DuPont, who was a champion tennis player and Olympic trap shooter who set a national endurance record for women's Gliders was arguably most notable for being the breeder of the legendary thoroughbred racehorse Kelso, who was an unprecedented five time horse of the year. So, another notable relative was cousin <laughs> Patsy DuPont, who bought an adjoining 500 acres next to Fair Hill that she christened Fairview. She was a well known competitor in the hunter ring, and she was also joint master of the Fair Hill Hunt. But her most notable contribution she made to the horse world was in bringing the Pony Club to the USA when she started the Fair Hill Pony Club in 1953, an organization she ran until her death. She was called Miss Patsy
2: and mentored (laughs)
1: generations of future Olympians and equestrian professionals. So unlike other branches, the Fairhill Pony Club was almost completely underwritten by Patsy. And for decades, she maintained 30 plus horses and ponies for the members, taught the lessons and took the groups on annual field trips, such as attending the horse show at Madison Square Gardens in New York City. Callback. Yeah. She also sponsored the local hunt club after the death of John's father, William DuPont Jr., in the 1960s, and did so up to and beyond her death, leaving a financial legacy that will benefit the hunt for years to come. Wow. So other notable DuPont relatives includes John's grandfather. So William I, bet
0: you, I bet you like her.
1: I do. <laughs> <laughs> I like her and I like Lana. <laughs> Some of the other people are like, ugh, I don't like you, but uh, (laughs) I like those two guys, those (laughs) ladies. So I include uh, John's grandfather, William DuPont, Sr., who was a noted breeder of hackneys and percheron horses. And he traveled extensively to judge at horse shows. Hmm. So the DuPonts as equestrians were barrier-crashing innovators and legacy builders. The members of the family who were closest to John geographically were high achievers and were immersed in every aspect of the world of horses but john had unrealized dreams obviously yes yes i think again like like thinking about all those people that lived around him cousins brothers sisters mom's dad you're know, yeah. like ugh, who who, uh, who? look at me who am i on this goofy looking little guy you know <laughs> and so yeah and then he started off riding and going in horse shows but yeah, yeah did not have the attitude out, for it yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. and then yeah, anyway. So, well, yeah,
0: because everyone else, because you, there's all these people, not everyone, but all, there's all these people around you who are so stellar that even your small accomplishments aren't enough to, you know, to make it,
1: Yeah. to, to make it bring to, attention to you. Yeah, so, not at all. There's yeah. no,
0: no point in doing this. So, we got to move on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Time, time to become a swimmer.
1: Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so, I think we will go and look at his trying to move through that. Grab that that brass ring or whatever. So, <laughs> okay. so he was a man that could buy anything. He hailed from the family that could do anything. They set their mind to, but he was a man who had Olympic aspirations that were never realized. So, uh, while at school, he swam for Harvard. Haverford, his school, and in college, he swam for the University of Florida. So after graduation in 1963, he bought an estate in California and started training with George Haynes, who is the best swim coach in the nation. So his aspirations were to make the 1964 Olympic team. Yeah.
0: But you know what? You need to have that athletic. Yes. Something.
1: Yeah. It soon became apparent that John, who is not a natural athlete, but admittedly a very hardworking one who never missed a practice, was never late and worked diligently at every exercise, did not have what it took to mm-hmm. make the team. Mm-hmm. So Coach George Haynes and another club official sat him down for a talk and ulti- ultimately were able to redirect John to the lesser known Olympic sport of modern pentathlon.
0: Which does have swimming as a, as yes. a part as yeah. part of it.
1: And then he al- already was a rider.
0: thirty rider. He, so. he Maybe he was a practice marksman by this point or had spent some time. Uh, yeah, I
1: don't know. But um, one of the things, having known many people that were modern pentathletes at the Olympic level. Yeah. Often it is the riding that people do poorly. Mm. And I mean, nowadays, well, not nowadays, but from the Japan Olympics most recently. I mean, it was the riding that is resulting in modern pentathlon being in the news very negatively. And I think being taken out of the Olympics. Oh, was taken out? I believe it's taken out and they're also re configuring how it's run and i think the horse part is out now oh that's too bad yeah i should have looked this up but yeah there have been big changes to the sport Mm. but definitely you know the riding has always been the weak link for Mm. mini so so yeah modern pentathlon is a sport that has the uh, athletes run swim shoot ride and fence so oh here it is um, it gained headlines as a sport the 2021 Tokyo Olympics, when a member of the German team who is sitting in first place had trouble getting her horse to go forward and it wasn't her horse. They ride borrowed horses yeah. and the horse has already been in and done around with another competitor because they don't, don't have enough horses yeah. to give one for everyone. Yeah. So they were sharing. And while on camera and under the gaze of the world, the rider had a meltdown when they could not get the horse to go. Um, the coach tried to intervene, but just created a worse situation as it was seen that she was actually punching the horse in the hindquarter. She was just basically pushing it, yeah. trying to get it away from the gate. That was interpreted as punching. Um, the competitor, who Boy, was sitting you, in first place. For a horse,
0: a horse to feel you punching its quarter, <laughs> you'd practically have to break your hand.
1: Yeah. So the competitor ultimately was eliminated. Uh, the coach was immediately sent home for abuse of the horse. And currently, modern pentathlon has now been reformatted by the IOC and will no longer be running at the Olympics in its previous format. Boy, oh boy. But back in John's day, modern pentathlon had decades to go as a sport. (laughs) And at that time, there were only 25 people in the country with the financial support necessary to do all the training and competing that they have to do to qualify for the Olympics. And the people that I know that have done... Uh, modern pentathlon at that level, yeah, yeah. that's a big thing. Like, it it sure. just costs a lot of money because with five sports that you have to train for, you are training continuously. Like, mm-hmm. There's no time for a part-time job. There's no time for coaching to raise money. There's no time for anything else. You are just like training constantly. Hmm. So John already knew how to run, to swim, to shoot, and to ride. So he just had to add fencing to his repertoire. So much more attainable than his swim goals. So John hired a man called Lajo Cesar, one of the nation's top fencing coaches, to work with him. And later he met swim coach Jim Goffran, who coached John for the next decade. Hmm. Goffron became more than a coach and was a friend, confidant, and companion. So the two traveled to foreign destinations such as Fiji and Samoa, and Goffran was a frequent guest at Lisseter Hall. So in 1965, John turned Lisseter Hall into a training facility for modern pentathlon. He had running trails installed around the property. He commissioned a shooting range that was the exact replica of the FBI shooting range at Quantico. (laughs) So he even hired the same architect and contractor that J. Edgar Hoover had used and had his father's tenant's courts ripped out so that an Olympic-sized swimming pool could be installed. Wow. So John had a full size mosaic created on one wall of the indoor pool with tiles imported from Florence that depicted John competing in all five phases of modern pentathlon. <laughs>
0: Boy, what a Caesar, hey. Mm-hmm. What a what a what a caligula.
1: Yep. Interesting. So, yeah. Uh, it was in nineteen sixty-five that John had his one great triumph when he won the Australian National Pentathlon Championships. <laughs> Sadly, Australia was not a country with a great history for modern pentathlon, <laughs> nor did John have much competition at the tournament. Oh. It is around this time that John got the idea to use the name his father had used for his racing stables, Foxcatcher Farm, for the local swimmers that were now using the facility. And with that, Team Foxcatcher was born.
0: Huh. Such a great name.
1: Yeah. So in 1966, John conceived of the idea of a mini-modern pentathlon that featured only three events, swimming, running, and shooting. The purpose of the competition was to identify strong athletes who could then be taught and tutored in the more niche events of fencing and riding.
0: So is that triathlon
1: then? Yeah, so this was the beginning of a triathlon movement in the USA when John hosted the first DuPont triathlon in 1966. John even went so far as to promote himself as the father of
0: triathlon. Oh, <laughs> dear me. Oh, you know, if you just let it happen, it would yeah. happen. But if you push it, people are not going to be yeah. so receptive to this idea. So, yeah. oh, It's sad. It's it sad is. when people are like that. You know, it is so... Needy. Awkward. Yeah, yeah. that neediness. and It just results in something that's very unpleasant. hmm
1: so 1967, saw the first of many The US reason I know
0: this is because of my own need- neediness, <laughs> folks. So. No. so yeah,
1: 1967 was the first of many U.S. National Pentathlon Championships that were held at the farm. And it was a per- perfect place because it was already a horse place. Yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, sure. And then sure. It had all this thing. he had everything there that he needed. <laughs> so <laughs> yes. it was at this event I where he was there, so. yeah, host, organizer, and competitor that Sports Illustrated, who was covering the event, got this telling quote from John. So this is a quote. My interest in the pentathlon isn't just for myself. It's such a little-known sport, and I think it's high time we won a gold medal or a world championship. Being second is just like all other places, not first. (laughs) So, in this competition on home turf, John finished 14th individually and (laughs) did not make the team. Oh, dear. Not first. Poor guy. So, unfortunately, Mm -hmm. despite all his hard work, training, support, and investment, John did not make the 1968 U.S. Modern Pentathlon Olympic team. However, Carl Roby, who trained at Foxcatcher, won the 200-meter butterfly, becoming the first Foxcatcher champion. Mm -hmm. So, John did make it to the Olympics once, but not as an athlete. In 1976, he served as chef de keep for the U.S.A. Modern Pentathlon team in Montreal. That's something.
0: It is something. Yeah. You know, this is, I'm just thinking of stuff I was going to save for, for the, the very end. But, you know, this just reminds me of Jimmy Williams, where you have a person who could have really created a great legacy for himself, mm-hmm. but his own personal failings, you know, just got in his way, you know, that he just, he got in his own way. Yeah. You know, and so rather than create a legacy that would be remembered forever, that Team Fox, Fox Foxcatcher would be like a great, mm-hmm. you know, a a great uh part of the history of modern pentathlon of of modern triathlon of sports springboard
1: for so many sports for so
0: many athletes instead it just became this you know horror show uh because of his And some of it's not as obviously some of it's not his fault i mean if he was if he did have serious you know psychotic you know issues with Mm -hmm. with psychosis or with you know paranoid schizophrenia or whatever uh that is not on him but it's just so unfortunate that it came to that you mm-hmm. know uh but even without the schizophrenia there was still the narcissism and you know his constant need for for approval and, uh, and praise which you know coming from a cold mother obviously you know those are obvious res- results of that mm-hmm. you know that you just don't get enough praise in, from your your mother from your person that you love, you know, that you are born to love. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to be born to, it's supposed to love you, you know, that's supposed to be your relationship. And then it, you don't get that. You just spend the rest of your life searching for it. And right. it's just a sad, a sad search. Cause it doesn't really work very well that
1: mm-hmm. way. Yes, it is a sad story. So he's failed as a horse rider. He failed as a swimmer. Yeah. And he failed as a modern pentathlete. So yes. next he sets his sights on water polo. <gasps> I
0: hate, I don't like the word fail in this though, because I feel like,
1: well, I mean, he got up and he is competing internationally. He's competing, so yeah, he's he competing internationally.
0: But not just that, but I mean, he he created the sport in North America. Mm-hmm. You know, he he made modern pentathlon a thing. He created modern triathlon as a way to as a springboard to to pentathlon. Like those well, are and good even ideas. Even as a
1: sport itself, that is ultimately now more popular than modern pentathlon yeah. by far. Yeah. yeah,
0: but I mean, originally, like, but as an idea of this mm-hmm. is a good way to like find people that we can train for these other niche sports. that's a good idea yeah like those are smart smart ideas mm-hmm. that you know like that's not failure that's success yeah. uh, it's just unfortunate that that's not the success that he wanted you yes. know, he didn't want to yeah. be he didn't want to just be in the background he mm-hmm. wanted to be in the foreground yeah you know
1: yes so yeah he sets his sights on water polo next Uh, Because he was a decent swimmer. (laughs) He's
0: not going to do water polo. Water polo is an incredibly difficult sport.
1: Well, he thought he might be a goalie because he was too old to start the sport afresh. And he was not viewed as a natural athlete. So he was 10 years older than all the other athletes on the team. So he completely sponsored a team on a trip to Europe for competition. So they allowed him to be on the team and be the goalie. So it was said that John... In quotations, never saved one goal, but he was fun to be around. <laughs> so it was very quick that his water polo dreams didn't pan out. Yeah. So he then turned his vision to mentoring. So in 1978, he was able to hire his former swim coach, George Haynes, away from UCLA for the ma- modern pentathlon team. So at UCLA, Haynes was making 25000 a year. John was willing to pay Haynes 100000 plus moving <laughs> expenses and provide housing on the estate in mm. order to secure his services. I don't know if it's worth it. No. Within two months, Haynes was reaching out to his lawyer stating, leaving UCLA was the biggest mistake of my life. Yeah. The 1980 Olympic boycott was the final nail in the coffin of this partnership, and Haynes ultimately left Team Foxcatcher.
2: Yeah.
1: So, by 1985, most of America's top triathletes were training with Team Foxcatcher. August 1988 saw Team Foxcatcher at Austin, Texas at the Olympic swim trials. Team Foxcatcher members Dave Wharton and Trina Radke both qualified, but John had to leave partway through when he received news that his mother had died. Mm. So, it has been stated before that following his riding accident, accident, John started drinking and abusing prescription drugs, which caused him to become very up and down. So the death of his mother, who he had lived with until her death at 91, was the unmooring of John. So in addition to his interest in modern pentathlon, triathlon, swimming, and water polo, in the mid 1980s, John turned his sights to wrestling. So he initiated an association with Villanova University, located five miles from the estate. He became their benefactor and in 1986 built a $15 million DuPont pavilion that included a pool and a basketball court.
0: I was going to say Villanova is well known for their basketball. and Mm. I guess guess that's another part of his legacy that if he just had been
1: supportive, (laughs) he would have this legacy.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: Yeah. So he also created a wrestling program and had himself named head coach. He then hired Olympic gold medalist Mark Schultz as assistant coach. Ultimately that did not work out and Mark Schultz left Team Foxcatcher to coach at Brigham Young University. So John's interest in wrestling was at odds with the feeling of his family, and we said before his mother had said it was a sport for ruffians. <laughs> so in she must have been
0: thinking of wrestling on television.
1: Yeah, I guess maybe. Because it's a yeah. different
0: sport, yeah. you know, but if you associate it with that sort of, you know, flamboyant pretend wrestling, you know, that that's that of course that seems very low mm-hmm. compared but but, you know, like athletic wrestling, like actual competitive wrestling is a lot different than yeah, it is sort of it nonsense practiced on But everything. I
1: think it's got such a financially low entry point that mm. to her, yeah. you know, it would, the people that would or could potentially be involved in it yeah. could be ruffians, you know? Sure. But anyway, I don't know. Maybe she was a snob.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I would say most positively. Yes. She was a snob.
1: Yeah. So... Around the time his mom passed in 88, Villanova suddenly severed ties with John. They were worried about some of his actions and his choices, which involved flying wrestlers to meets on his Learjet and allowing wrestlers to reside at Licitor Farm. Okay. So they were kind of eyes were, eyebrows were being raised. (sighs)
0: <sighs> I'm so, sure there is more to it than just yes. letting people <laughs> live. Yeah, there. yeah, $15 million.
1: <laughs> yeah, you're, you're not going to go, no, he let them go on his airplane. Yeah. <laughs> so when the Villanova partnership ended, DuPont built himself his state-of-the-art training facility at his own property. Yeah. He attracted wrestlers with offers of top-notch trainers and facility and went beyond that by providing free housing and a $1,000 a month stipend. Hmm. In 88, he hired Mark Schultz's Olympic medalist gold brother, Dave, as head coach for Foxcatcher. Schultz was attempting a comeback, but failed to make it onto both the 1988 and the 1992 Olympic teams. He was named as coach for the 1988 team. DuPont also made generous financial donations and provided ongoing support to the National Wrestling Federation, Wrestling USA, and was ultimately rewarded by being named Team Leader for the U.S. wrestling team at the 1992 Barcelona Olympics. John had pumped millions into various sports from swimming and triathlon to modern pentathlon and wrestling. Into wrestling alone, he donated $400,000 a year to USA Wrestling between 1989 and 1995. He would identify a passion and invest in it fully, identify the need and donate the funds or provide various support, but then attempt to gain control within the organization. (laughs) So when that didn't work, he would move on. So it was a definite pattern. Yeah. But then we saw a rapid descent. (laughs) After his mother's death in 1988, John assumed stewardship of Lisseter Hall Farm. One of his first acts as new owner was to rename the facility Foxcatcher Farm, and he had the colors change from his mother's green and white to his father's blue and gold. Without his mother's grounding influence, he started to act very irrationally. He severed connections with his extended family And in 1992, he severed his long-time ties with the local police department, telling them they were no longer welcome on his property to use the shooting range they had been training in since the 1960s. Hmm. In June of 1996, John suddenly stopped donating money to USA Wrestling. He no longer sponsored the warm-up suits worn by competitors, nor did he sponsor any competitions. The number of wrestlers training and living on the estates dropped quickly from 30 to 4. This is at the time that John started calling himself the Dalai Lama of the United States, according to his sister-in-law Martha, who is the wife of his brother Henry. This is a quote: "She said he withdrew from the family and he surrounded himself with these strangers, moochers, people who have kept him from his family, fed him drugs. It's so tragic. No one could who could help. No one could help now, and no one could help then." Um. Co-prosecutor Dennis McAndrews has stated that DuPont is likely the richest man in the United States to have stood trial for murder. During the trial, DuPont was held in the Delaware County prison. The presiding judge was Patricia Jenkins. She initially found John to be mentally incompetent to stand trial, then reversed that ruling two months later after he had received treatment at Norristown State Hospital. Testimony was heard in January of 1997. It went on for five weeks, and then followed by a week of jury deliberation. During the trial, Dupont wore his blue and gold team foxcatcher warm- warm-ups every day. <laughs> he was re- represented branding. by branding. Pardon? Branding. Yeah, he was represented by a dream team that was headed by national appellate magnet Alan Dershowitz. 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 Who okay. successfully
0: uh, defended that guy who. Murdered his wife uh, in New York, you know, the uh, socialite.
1: Oh, yes. Klaus. Klaus von Bülow. Klaus von Bülow, yeah. yes. So there were so many lawyers and paralegals that the team filled the entire defendant's desk and the first two rows of spectator seating in Philadelphia's Superior Court. <laughs> On the other side huh. sat Lori Madig, or Magid, the county's assistant DA. <laughs> she successfully <laughs> defeated DuPont's direct appeal. She was supported by a small army of law school interns who did all her research. (laughs) Copious evidence was presented, including brain scans, in an attempt to convince the jury that DuPont had mental issues. Hmm. District Attorney Meehan uh, said Goodale's testimony showed DuPont was not insane. So there is a quote. Saying He says, the discussion about a rapid exit, a return to the mansion, the request for lawyers, a lot of things which are certainly for the jury to determine the significance of, but they are facts which are certainly on the record now. So he said Resnick, uh, sorry, it was said that uh, DuPont thought he was justified in killing Schultz because his psychotic mind perceived Schultz to be part of an international conspiracy to assassinate him. And that's what he was thinking. Okay. So that was his defense, his claims.
0: Yes. Okay.
1: But it's also that he also recognized that the police surrounding his home considered Schultz's death to be a homicide, and that is the key to the issue, whether he thought his act was wrong or not.
0: Yes. Yeah. So the defense's argument is that because he returned back to his house, yeah, he
1: took steps to, to, to hide, hide himself yeah, and yeah, so to, and to he wasn't a, insane. Yeah, yeah, yes,
0: yeah, because he made he made logical choices. He went, he returned to his home. He locked himself up there. He called lawyers mm-hmm. to 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 uh, try to to fend off illegal actions. So yeah, no, these are not the acts of a crazy person. A crazy no. person would wear a Napoleon hat and put his arm into his
1: yeah. to his
0: shirt. <laughs> his hand in his shirt. Yeah. We all know that's what mm-hmm. a crazy person does.
1: Yeah. And that's basically what the defense lawyers tried to say he was innocent by reason of insanity. Mm. So
0: It's interesting that he would go along with that. Mm-hmm. Because yes. that would be like so antithetical to his idea of himself, you know, and so self destructive as a as a way to Think about yourself. Mm-hmm. It's hard to imagine him allowing that as a, as a uh, defense. Right. You know.
1: And then part of his defense team efforts also involved Goodale, so that was the security guy. Yeah. Saying like they kind of pointed the finger at him, saying that almost that they he had pushed him to it. He was the puppet um, master. Yeah. He they f- he fueled Dupont's paranoia, uh, and he was milking him for money. And there was also the implication that he was a guy that was giving him drugs too. Okay. So, ultimately, the jury decided DuPont was mentally ill, but they also decided he was guilty of third-degree murder. Okay. So, it was guilty, but mentally insane. Yeah. That was the arriving at the sentence. Okay. Um, he acted with malice, but the act was not planned in advance.
0: I would say that's probably true.
1: hmm And the judge uh, stated that he was mad and he was bad.
0: <laughs> well, that's a good way to sum it up. Yeah. You know, he knew what he was doing was wrong, but he was compelled to do it mm-hmm. by, by his his state of mind. Yeah. yeah.
1: So, in May of 1997, DuPont was sentenced to three, 13 to 30 years in prison. Okay. So, he quickly moved through three different institutions, and then finally he ended up in the State Regional Correction Facility at Mercer, which is a minimum security prison north of Princeton, or Pittsburgh, rather. Um, He filed numerous appeals and petitions in an attempt to get out earlier. So the first direct appeal was filed in April of 1999, which was denied, and then he continued to file appeals um, all the way to the Supreme Court, which would not hear the case. Uh, (laughs) September 22nd, 2003, he was denied relief um, under the Post-Conviction Relief Act, which sparked another series of appeals. So DuPont's longtime lawyer and friend, Terrace M. Wochak, was the only person from the original defense team that he retained. And so that guy continued to be his lawyer for the rest of the time. Sure. (laughs) Chuck continued to make weekly full day visits to DuPont for the decade after his conviction.
2: Mm.
1: So, of DuPont, a member of his legal team, co prosecutor, has stated that DuPont wasn't crazy, he was a jerk. And then he goes on to say, it's still a quote, some people are just basically jerks. Whether he was born a jerk or was made a jerk, he was a jerk. He was a mean guy. Money was inconsequential to him. When you have years and years of enabling by scores of people because of your incredible wealth, you can veer into tragic circumstances. I think you arrived at that already, my friend, didn't you?
0: Oh, I'm your friend? Yes, you are my
1: friend. That is what you had already said. So Schultz's yeah. widow, Nancy, filed a civil suit against DuPont in which she was awarded an estimated $35 million. <laughs> According to a trade journal which watches such cases, that figure would be the largest award resulting from a wrongful death suit ever paid directly by one person. Wow. She moved out of state and raised the couple's children, Alexander and Danielle, alone. In 1996, she founded the Dave Schultz Wrestling Foundation to provide support for people like her husband, but ultimately disbanded the program at the end of the 2004-2005 season for personal reasons, in quotation marks. Hmm. Today, Nancy Schultz is remarried and her children are adults. Alexander graduated from University of San Francisco and now runs a startup company, while Danielle, who is a longtime competitive horseback rider, uh, runs a pet sitting business. <laughs> So, in prison, Dupont maintained a strict guest list. He would ask locals to come in to speak on his behalf during the civil trial with Nancy Schultz. Others included members of the Echo Valley Association, members of the Preservation Association, and longtime property manager Bev Collier. Dupont promised a group that if his appeals were successful, he'd turn the estate into a perpetual nature reserve so in spite of all this. DuPont would only speak sparingly of the property to the group, who were invested in maintaining its status, and instead to talk about his preference for food, his health, and the general goings on in prison. Ultimately, he failed to inform his longtime property manager, Collier, that he had finally sold the land.
0: Oh, okay.
1: What a jerk. <laughs> so, during his incarceration, John ordered that most of the buildings at the farm were painted black and he commissioned a sign to be made and erected at the foot of the driveway that read Fox Catcher Prison Camp. <laughs> so ultimately, the estate was broken up. Originally willed to the Delaware Museum of Natural History, the 230-acre dairy farm was sold in January of 1998 to G&W Land Company for $15.3 million to help fund operations. So it was earmarked as a new site of Episcopal Academy's new campus. Huh. In February of 2005, 416 acres of foxcatcher farm were sold to the Havertown-based development group, the Rouse Development Company. In 2008, 125 acres went towards a new campus of the Episcopal Academy, the prestigious mainline prep school. Part of the land was turned into a park. The mansion was sold in 2010 for $28.5 million after sitting disused and neglected for years, then it was torn down. Eventually, the bulk of the property was developed as an exclusive 45-plus housing development called Ashford. So the locals had a hard time seeing the land go for development, as they had always imagined it would stay there forever. Yeah, that's Um, Yeah, so his home was one of the ones that was bulldozed to make make room for the new housing development.
0: He was a jerk.
1: Mm -hmm. So while in prison, John was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. He worked as a clerk in the prison chapel and taught civics to other inmates. He died in prison in December of 2010 at the age of 72. He has been buried in an undisclosed location and, according to the terms of his will, was laid to rest in his wrestling singlet. <laughs> DuPont had been worth an estimated 200 million in 1986, about 490 million in current dollars. His will bequeathed 80% of his estate to Bulgarian wrestler Valentin Yordanov who was an Olympic champion who had trained at Foxcatcher. The other 20% was left to the Eurasian Pacific Wildlife Foundation, a group John founded. The will was contested by his relatives. USA Wrestling needed time to regroup after the loss of such a generous benefactor. Larry Jones, 2004 freestyle coach, stated, it's taken 10 years for the sport to recover from Schultz's murder, and it might take another 10 years to get back on our feet. Wow. The Foxcatcher story was made into the 2014 Oscar-nominated Bennett Miller-directed film Foxcatcher, starring Steve Carell as DuPont, Mark Ruffalo as Dave Schultz, and Channing Tatum as Mark Schultz. Ruffalo was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. Schultz's brother Mark, also a wrestler, served as an executive producer on the film, but expressed his displeasure with the final cut. <laughs> Dave's brother Mark Schultz wrote a non-fiction book, called Foxcatcher, The True Story of My Brother's Murder, John DuPont's Madness, and the Quest for Olympic Gold in 2014. The story of John DuPont, David Schultz, and Team Foxcatcher is documented in The Prince of Pennsylvania, a documentary film directed by Jesse Vile for ESPN's 30 for 30 series. Since Schultz's death, USA Wrestling has hosted the annual Dave Schultz Memorial International Wrestling Meet at the United States Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs, Colorado. In 1997, Schultz was posthumously inducted into the National Wrestling Hall of Fame as a distinguished member. John DuPont remains the only member of the Forbes 400 Richest Americans to have been convicted of murder. Wow. The end.
0: You really gotta murder someone. <laughs> When I mean, you're in the 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 whatever it is the Forbes Forbes list yeah, yeah 400 you really have to murder someone in order to get convicted yeah it's uh, you know i already said my my thoughts about him and about and, and about um whatever else i'd said
1: all that privilege and all yeah, that stuff yeah
0: yeah and it's and, you know it obviously is like this is you know a sad story i've just squandered s- squandered uh everything (laughs) you know squandered Mm -hmm. chances squandered life squandered legacy legacy, you know and that does really remind me of jimmy williams in the sense that you you had this thing that you know could have been really positive Mm -hmm. a positive force in in american sports and and particularly in in sports that aren't well supported Mm -hmm. you know it's so hard for athletes olympic athletes to be olympic athletes because all the sport most of the sports they compete in Are not glamorous sports don't have a lot of support don't have a lot of attention paid to them outside of gymnastics and maybe a little bit of swimming most people don't know who throws discs discus and who's wrestling and who's whatever else people do in the Mm -hmm. wrestling or in the olympic sports you know throwing javelin and whatnot like all those sort of things you know which still require hours and hours of training and and self-care and you know keeping up your, your physical fitness etc cetera, etc cetera, which all take time and take time away from you know working and stuff like that you mm-hmm. know so all these people need support and this you know fox setter was this place that really could have provided that and instead this became like this like i said a horror show which is sad which is really sad the other weird thing about it to me is like when you're talking you're in like 1991 you're in 1991 this feels like a story that took place in the 60s
1: yeah.
0: it just feels so old in a yeah. way like the, well, whole, I mean, the whole idea of it like the the the, the the, the rich person with his with his compound and mm-hmm. his, you know, putting money here and putting money into that, which a lot of it did take place in the 60s, like when he's building it his started, pool. started, yeah, like that. it started
1: back then. But yeah, it's just a way of life he was able to carry on just yeah. because of this privilege that yeah, he had. Yeah. yeah. It was just, it seemed to be a never ending flow of money. And yeah. He was always, yeah.
0: And it does just show, like, like I said about philanthropy, like just how it doesn't matter, I, you know, there's, a lot of people like I've had this argument with people, and they're just kind of like, "Well, it doesn't matter what their, you know, what their intentions are. It's just the fact that they're giving money to people." And do I know it matters what their intentions are? Because what they're doing with their money is often forms of control over people, you know. And they're using that money in order to insert themselves into these into these things, you know, because they want their name there, they or they want power, or they want whatever. Mm-hmm. If you really believe in philanthropy, then you give the money to. NGOs or to the government, to, who will then dish it out as as the dem, the the demos, as people who vote for them see fit, not one person lording it over everyone else with a lot, a lot of money and on strings and sort of dangling over people. Mm-hmm. Like you know, that's not a happy situation. Yeah, you know, and this is an example of that where the the philanthropy of it is poisoned by the personality of the of the privileged person who sees himself. You know as the privileged person and wants to enforce his privilege over the other people yeah it's uh it's a sad story and the saddest part of it is of course someone got killed a mm-hmm. uh, young man who had a family and had young children and could have been coaching at stanford
2: mm-hmm. and making mm-hmm. a
0: name for himself yeah. in a legitimate situation that would have would and would, would have had mm-hmm. positive benefits so yeah it's a it's too bad it really this is another sad story and Horse Mysteries.
1: <laughs> why can't we have a happy... Why can't we have happy... <laughs> why can't we have
0: happy criminal happenings? I don't understand. All these criminals... A, criminals seem to be mean and jerks and not very thoughtful of other people and or animals for that matter. Ah, well, at least we had a movie one. That was fun mm-hmm. anyway. All right, well, that, but that was a good story though. So it was mm-hmm. a good end to the, to the season. Yes. And I think people will kind of know that story, but I think we, we got into it a lot more... I even in the movie did i think
1: yes yeah and especially the horse part of it yeah because i'd read about lana dupont before yeah and so i knew about her and i was like wow 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 you know like she just did some totally incredible stuff and you know went from one strength to the next strength to the next strength and then to kind of make the connection with miss patsy and all the things she did, and I'm like there's two very incredibly great, talented, generous women. Yeah. And then to be yeah part of the family with with you know almost like their polar opposite, you know, their, their crazy cousin John, who did all these things, and I mean was I think trying to emulate them and what they had done, like he saw what they had laid down those paths and was trying to follow those paths. Sure,
0: we had the one who's supporting like Pony Club bringing in this, but you see the thing is like her ego is not in that situation. She's bringing in an established organization that already has like a a set, you know, practice, Mm -hmm. like a set, you know, course of study and a set way of doing things and she's not in Posing herself on it, she's just mm-hmm. bringing this in and establishing it, it, recognizing its value and bringing it in and establishing it, yeah. and supporting it with her own money. It's different than what he was doing, where he's trying to bend everything to his own will. Yeah, and, and he create would it in go in, in and just
1: take it back to you know himself. That yeah. he literally would build the thing as he wanted it, and yeah. then that was his thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that was the issue. Well, part of the issue with Villanova is just he was too controlling, but also, yeah, yeah it was it was. I think they were worried about the people that he was with the young. Yeah. The young yeah. people. So it was great that I think they stepped in and <laughs> did something about it. Sure. In spite of the money.
0: Yeah, yeah. Cuz that is pretty rare really.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: All right. Well, congratulations another season well done. Let's go to some comments. I'll okay. we'll have one comment anyway. This is from Louise. This is from our movie episode where we talked about films and we gave some recommendations of films that we le- we loved. And we did ask for for recommendations for movies that we might not know about. And maybe people felt a bit intimidated that because we both blabbed on and on about movies. So, <laughs> but what Louise did write in and Louise said, uh, she said, after hearing Dave recommend horse movies on Sneaky Dragon, I started catching them when they showed up on our movie channels and streaming services. Then I'd look for other horse movies as they made for good comfort. Uh, viewing during early days of the pandemic. Here are a few recommendations. So from 2019, Ride Like a Girl, based on the true story of Michelle Payne vying to be the first woman to win the Melbourne Cup in 2015. It stars Teresa Palmer, who I know from A Discovery of Witches, uh, and Sam Neill, who you know from Jurassic Park, of course, your favorite film, as the patriarch of a large horse training family. Lisa's smiling over there because she knows I'm <laughs> lying. Uh, As a patriarch of a large horse-training family, it was uh, the directorial debut of Australian actress Rachel Griffiths. Stevie Payne, Michelle's brother who has Down syndrome, plays himself and and is a real scene-stealer. So a little bit like The Rider, where the the main character's sister, who also has Down syndrome, has a big part in that film. Uh, And then from 2020, Concrete Cowboy. Let me know if you've heard of these films. No, I haven't. Starring Idris Elba and Caleb McLaughlin... From stranger things it's a fictional story of an estranged father and son bonding over horses. It's inspired by the real life African-American riding culture of Philadelphia and the Fletcher Street Urban Riding Club, which I have heard a little bit about that, like horses being ridden in the city mm-hmm.
1: I know yeah, it in Chicago a, too and London as well mm. in I think uh, Brixton area I okay think, yeah
0: oh. the movie was adapted from the young adult novel Ghetto Cowboy, and it had me at Idris Elba. <laughs> And it's the kind of, and it's the kind of animated horse movie that Lisa is not into. But for any six-year-olds out there, I would recommend Spirit Untamed from 2021. Set in the Old West, it's about an estranged father and daughter bonding over, well, you know. It got mixed reviews from non-six-year-old reviewers, but it's about a trio of plucky, multicultural girls trying to save a wild herd of horses from evil wranglers. Come on, what's not to love about that? You're right, Louise. That does sound fun.
1: And Louise actually wrote, because Louise writes Paw Patrol. Yes. And she wrote a whole horse show episode of Paw Patrol as well. <laughs> that's true. Yeah.
0: A jumping competition, I believe. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's very good. All right, everyone. Well, that wraps up another season of Horse Mysteries. We don't seem to have like any set time between the next seasons. It's No, it'll kinda...
1: probably be after I get back from Australia. Okay, so, yeah. Um, so sometime late in... Late November.
0: Late November. Okay, that's cool. So thank you, everyone, for listening to the show. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Lisa, for all your hard work putting together each episode.
1: Thank you, David, for all your talking at the (laughs) beginning and during. But great talking, right? (laughs) No, you always have very insightful things to say, and you raise good points. And sometimes you... um, even solve the issue as you did (laughs) this time you weren't even halfway through and you're like this is why he did it and you were right
0: (laughs) and also we'd love to thank uh chris roberts for his wonderful music for for every episode Mm -hmm. we don't put his name in the credits because we don't have credits but if we did we would put chris roberts here every episode maybe i should i don't know Mm -hmm. I don't know whatever podcast etiquette is for these things, no. but thank you Chris Roberts yes. for your wonderful music.
1: And we were lucky enough to be able to meet Chris Roberts during this season That's right. in real life. <laughs> we went to Scotland and
0: Yes, we did get to meet Chris yeah. and uh, we got to bend his ear and make him stay up way too late. <laughs> so that was a lot, but it was a great visit though. So yes, thank you Chris and uh and thank you for dinner and thank you listeners for listening in and thank you for your contributions for writing to us and you know what i am so out of step with with whatever is going on with podcasts that i've i even looked up to see if anyone's reviewed the show to be honest with you so i have no idea if my regular pleas for reviews has paid off but if you enjoy the show and you enjoy writing reviews of things head over to wherever reviews are written about podcasts on whatever podcast things you listen to and uh give us some reviews write us our or even just give us some stars. Some stars would be great. You know what? And five. Why not five? It's an easy, it's a round number, right? Isn't it round? Mm, no. It's not a round number? It's round. It's round and it's a round it, number for it, podcast it, reviewing. It's a
1: round five.
0: It's a round five. It's around <laughs> round five stars. All right. So there we go. Let's stop it right here. Bye, everyone.
1: Bye. Bye.